the reading of the word, Exodus uh, chapter 4, verses 1 to 17. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. And again the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take, your hand, take in your hand this staff which, uh, with which uh, you shall do the signs. The grass withers, the flower fades. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we have just heard your word read, but unless you give us ears to truly hear it, then it will just go in one ear and out the other. Right now you see us as we truly are. We pray that you would not leave us there. Lord, you see that some of us in here may be brokenhearted or distracted or bored or weary, or in need of encouragement. We pray, O oh God, that your word would come and find us and lead us to the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. Do that for your glory and for our good, we pray. Amen. So our passage this morning, um, in it, we are picking up mid-conversation in this dialogue that Moses is having with God himself 
there on the, on the side of Mount Sinai as God speaks to him in this burning bush. You remember just a few, just a few paragraphs ago in Exodus, Moses walks up on this burning shrub there in the desert, and it's on fire, but it's not burning up. And it piques Moses' interest. He walks up, and God speaks to him from it. And it's not the last time in Exodus that God is going to appear in the form of a fire that never goes out, that burns from within itself. Um, he's, he's in a bush right now, but in a few chapters, as he leads his people out of Egypt, he's going to be burning up the top of the mountain himself. But here in, in Exodus 3 and 4, God appears to Moses, and he's speaking to him in this burning bush, and he's tasking Moses with a mission. He's, given Mo, he's giving Moses a calling, a mission. He's sending him on God's divine rescue mission, and he's speaking with Moses about who he, who he is as God, that he is the great I am, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's telling Moses what he's about to do, that he's going to deliver the children of Egypt and bring them to the promised land. And so what we get here in this passage that you just heard read, it's like someone planted a microphone, a bug, on that bush somewhere, and we get to listen in on this conversation that God is having with his servant Moses. It's a dialogue, and so far Moses has been doing all of the question asking, and God has been doing all of the responding, all of the talking, and that's about like what you would expect, right? Um, so far, the conversation has developed like we would expect it would. Um, so far, Moses' questions have been very understandable. They're the kind of questions that you would expect somebody to ask, talking to God in a burning bush out in the middle of nowhere. And his two questions up to this point in chapter 3 have been essentially, God, who am I and who are you? He says in, in chapter 3, verse 11, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Egypt or bring the children of Israel up out of Egypt. Who am I, God? And I love God's response to him there. If you remember it a few, a few lines ago, God doesn't answer that question. He basically tells Moses, Moses, that's not the right question. I'm going to answer the question you should have asked. I'm, I'm going to go with you. I'll be with you. That's what's important, Moses. And then Moses' next question is, well, okay, if you're going to be going with me, and if that's all that's important, then who are you? What, what's your name? What am I to tell the people of Israel when they ask, who sent me? What's your name? And that's where we were last week when God reveals his personal covenant name to Moses, Yahweh, or Jehovah, the great I Am. So far, the conversation we're listening to is going along just fine. And here's the thing. We're kind of expecting at this point, after God says what he does in the paragraph before this when revealing who he is, his name, and everything that's involved in that, we're really expecting the conversation to be over. The dialogue probably shouldn't be going on much more after that. That's really all Moses should need, right? I mean, after God tells him who he is and what he's going to do and who he's going to be for Moses... Moses' only response should have been, okay, where do we start? Sign me up. Let's roll. That's how the conversation should have ended. But you notice that this morning in our passage, the conversation keeps going. The dialogue continues. And the conversation, honestly, it goes south pretty quick. 
Because Moses goes from asking questions to making statements. He's not curious anymore. In fact, he thinks that he has all the information that he needs. The conversation keeps going. It really shouldn't. And we realize now that Moses, he doesn't want information. He wants out. He doesn't want to know more about God and about God's mission. No, he thinks that God needs to know why his mission isn't going to work. Moses goes from asking questions from a place of genuine curiosity to making declarations out of a place of genuine doubt. He's heard what God has to say, and now he thinks that God needs to hear what he has to say. Because obviously God has not thought this thing through. There's some holes in his plan. There's some gaps that Moses needs to inform God about. And so in our passage, in this portion of the dialogue between Moses and God, we get to listen in. It's a real, it's a real treat. We get to listen in on a conversation of, uh, between God and one of his servants. As one of his servants expresses his sincere doubts and hesitations and reluctance, about something that God is calling him to do. And then we get to hear how God responds to those doubts and to those hesitations. And y'all look, if that's what our our passage is, that means that it is so incredibly relevant to you and me this morning. This conversation that we get to listen in on is for us because the same conversation goes on in our hearts every day. We're used to having the same kind of internal dialogue that can play out the same way, if we're honest. We may not be standing in front of a burning bush, and we may not be called to go deliver God's people from slavery, but we are all called to something and to be something by God. To be a Christian is to be on God's mission, is to be following Jesus in his mission in this world. To be following Jesus is to be invited into the calling of being his people in this world with everything that that implies. Which means that just like Moses, you're called to something. Just like Moses, you're called to be something and to do something as God's people. And just like Moses, we have our doubts. Just like Moses, we can be reluctant, hesitant, unwilling, stubborn, stiff-necked. Just like Moses, God can give us all the information that we could possibly need in order to trust Him with what He's calling us to do. And instead of responding with, here I am, Lord, send me, we can respond with, here I am, Lord, and I think I'd rather just stay right here. So the way that we're going to open up our passage and th- th- this dialogue where, God, where, where Moses is expressing his doubts and God is responding to those doubts is under, is under those two headings. And I, I'll frame it in the form of two questions. What's at the root of our doubts and how does God respond to those doubts? What's at the root of our doubts and how does God respond to our doubts? So first of all, the root of our doubts. I want you to notice that, that here on the surface... The first two statements that Moses has to say in verse 1 and verse 10, on the surface, they're correct. Like, he's right. He's not crazy. It's not like Moses has lost his mind here. He's actually, on the surface, reading the relevant facts correctly. Look at what he says in verse 1. 
Behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. Moses is saying, God, look, I know these people. They're not going to willingly submit to leadership or accept rescue. <laughs> I tried that one time. They didn't like it. They don't, they're, they're probably not going to want any part of it. They're probably not going to blindly follow me that shows up out of nowhere from the desert announcing that I've been sent front by God. They're, they're going to be suspicious. I know these people. They're not going to believe. In other words, he's saying, God, they're the problem. Their obstinance, their stubbornness is an obstacle that I don't think that your plan is taking into account. They're not going to believe. And you know what? <laughs> On the surface, he's right. He's not crazy. He knows what they're like. The extreme irony that we need to see here, though, is that he's actually responding right now in the same way that he's afraid that they're going to respond, <laughs> by being reluctant and hesitant and not believing. He knows what they're like and how they're going to respond because he's one of them. So on the surface, he's right. And then look at verse 10, his next objection. Oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Again, on the surface, he's on to something. He's not, he's not wrong. Most commentators think that Moses here, he's not, he's not being like falsely humble or, or self-deprecating here. Uh, he's not just making this up. Most commentators think that he's, he's either referring to some kind of stammer or, or, or speech impediment or, or something that gets in the way of, of his communication abilities. Maybe he's forgotten how to speak fluent Egyptian like he would be expected to speak in the court of, of Pharaoh. Or maybe like we can all relate to, maybe he knows that he gets in front of people and his mind just goes blank and he can't put words and sentences together. And he's afraid of public speaking. Whatever it is, or some kind of combination of all of that, he's not making it up. And on the surface, he's right. It's accurate. Key phrase being on the surface. But there's something dark and ugly underneath the surface of Moses' doubts here that we need to see. On the surface, what Moses is saying, on the surface, his doubts and his objections, they seem plausible, rational, they seem accurate. They, they really do seem like a fair understanding and reading of the relevant facts. But only on the surface. Because underneath those doubts is something ugly. Underneath those doubts is a root of just plain old unbelief. Plain old unbelief. In verses 1 and 10, he, listen to what he's essentially saying to God. He's essentially saying, look, you've given me some information about this divine rescue plan that you're sending me on. You've, get, you, you've given me information, now let me give you some information. There's some gaps in your plan here. There's something that you've not thought through. And it really boils down to this, God. They're going to get in the way, verse 1, and I'm going to get in the way, verse 10. Their obstinance and my disability, their stubbornness and my weakness. God, I just don't think your plan accounts for that. You see, his doubt really boils down to this. God, you might be who you are, 
But they are still who they are. And I'm still who I am. And I don't think that you at your best is a match for them at their worst. And especially not me at my weakest. Underneath Moses' doubts, underneath his seemingly incorrect reading, or his seemingly correct reading of the relevant facts, is an impoverished, anemic, starved, small, incorrect view of God. Under the surface of his doubts is the belief that there are some things in this world out there that God can't change. Some people, some situations, some circumstances that God can't change. And the belief that there is some brokenness and weakness in here that even God can't use. That was the root of his doubts that we see him expressing here. You see, under the surface of Moses' doubt about them in verse 1, about the people of Israel in verse 1, is really a doubt about God's character, about his ability, about his truthfulness. If you remember back in in chapter 3, verse 18, God had specifically said to Moses, Moses, they're going to listen to your voice. And here's Moses saying, no, they won't. I don't believe you. God, I know them better than you do. (laughs) There are some people and some situations and some hard hearts that even you can't change. And I know me better than you do. There There is some weakness and inability that even you can't work with. Now let's pause right there. You might be hearing that and think, Moses, you are literally staring God in the face out there in the wilderness in the burning bush. Like you're hearing his voice coming to you out of a fire that's not dying out. You are looking God in the face and you're still, and you still don't believe and you still think that he's limited, that there's something he can't do? Moses, you've, you've got to be a real fool to not be taking him at his word. But, but listen, as you're th- picking up rocks to throw at Moses here for his unbelief, let he or she who is without this root of unbelief somewhere in your hearts cast the first stone. Go ahead. <laughs> because we're just like Moses. You see, the kind of unbelief that's under the surface of Moses' doubts here, it's not the hardened, angry, kind of fist-in-the-air, atheist kind of unbelief of a Richard Dawkins or a Christopher Hitchens. It's not the kind of postmodern persuasion that there is no absolute truth and every religion is just a different kind of power play and all religions are basically the same. It's not that kind of unbelief. No, it's the kind of unbelief that's so subtle and deep-rooted that it can reside in the hearts of people that know and believe God. Who have believed in Him for a long time. It's the kind of unbelief that doesn't necessarily disbelieve in God. It just believes in other things more. I believe in God. I believe that He's big. I just think that my marriage problems are even bigger. I believe in everything in the Nicene Creed. A few minutes ago, said it all without blinking. I'm there, but I just don't think that God can work with my loneliness or with my depression or with my unwanted, persistent sexual brokenness. 
or with my anger. That's out of God's reach. I believe in God, I just believe in those things more. I believe that God wants to save unbelievers. I believe that He's called us on the Great Commission to seek and to save the lost. I believe that God wants to do that. I, I just don't think He's going to use me. Because when, when I try to witness or, or bear witness to what I believe to my neighbor, it just all comes out wrong, and I'm afraid of how it's going to work, and I might push him away. And I think I do believe, but I just don't think He's going to use me. I believe in God's ability. I just believe in my inability even more. As you're sitting here this morning in worship, and you've come here, I trust most of us, because you do believe. But as you sit here this morning, is there something that you believe in more? Something even over the last few days, over the last week, that you have believed in more? Something that's standing in the way, you believe, between what God has said that he'll do and his ability to do it. In that inner dialogue deep in your heart, what have you been telling God about? What have you been telling God about just like Moses that he can't work with, that he's not thinking about, that he's not taking into consideration? What good thing are you holding back from doing or trying to do? that you know that you're called to do because you're convinced that your weakness will get in the way? What has God called his people to do, big picture and, little, and, and small picture, that you're not doing because you believe that God is limited by your limitations? You see, we're all a lot more like Moses here than we want to think. And we need to ask ourselves, we need to step onto that operating table and let God do his work to see where that root of unbelief is wrapped around different parts of our hearts. Because here's the thing, y'all, a, a God whose unchanging eternal purposes can fail because of your limitations, because of my weakness, is not a God worth worshiping. A God who's only as strong as I am, a God who's only able to do what you're able to do, that doesn't sound like God, that just sounds like you, doesn't it? And the good news is that God is not like you. And he's trying to reframe Moses' perspective here, and he's trying to reframe our perspective here. The very good news for us is that his ability to do what he's called us to do and to do what he's promised to do is never limited by our disability. His power is never limited by our weakness. In fact, he's always wanting to show up right there in our weakness to work by his power. Your weakness, your inability doesn't keep God from working. It's usually the place where he wants to work the most. Think of it like this. Just play along with me for a second. I want you to imagine that instead of God coming to speak with Moses here in a burning bush, I want you to imagine that instead God had decided to write Moses a letter and that he writes out the, the call to Moses in a letter and he sends it to Moses. But he knows that Moses out there in the wilderness of Midian, of Midian he's got two different post office, post office boxes, two different 
boxes. And one of those is labeled or addressed Moses' strengths, and the other is addressed Moses' weaknesses. Which box do you think Moses would have preferred God to send his call to? Which box do you think God, which box do you think Moses wants that call to come to? Obviously to his strengths, to his abilities, his capacities, the things that he's good at. And Moses was certainly good at lots of things. He had lots of gifts to offer, lots of things to offer on the table, but that's not where the call came. It came addressed to his weakness. It came addressed right to that place where he thought he couldn't do it. And y'all, that's where God's call usually finds us. That's where God's invitation to trust him and to follow him usually comes addressed to. Not to those places where you think that you're strong and capable, but to those places where you're scared and weak and afraid. That's where he comes and says, trust me, follow me. That's the way that God works with Moses, and he has ever since. He did the same thing with the Apostle Paul, who had to learn the exact same spiritual lesson thousands of years later, that God doesn't come looking for our gifts and our strengths, even though sometimes he does, and he can definitely use them. And he's the author of them. He gave them to us in the first place, right? But he usually comes looking for our weaknesses and saying, do you trust me here? Will you follow me here? Do you believe that I'm enough right here where it's obvious that you're not? So we've seen the root of our doubts. Underneath all these plausible and seemingly correct objections that Moses might have, underneath it all is a view about God and of of about himself (laughs) that God wants to reframe and correct. And he wants to do the same thing with our doubts too. And he does that by responding to our doubts. How does he respond to Moses' doubts here? Well, notice again the, the structure of the dialogue. We have three brief statements from Moses, but God's the one that's doing all the talking. God's the one that's responding in, in longer form to Moses. So it's obvious that like, God doesn't just hear Moses' doubts and say, Dead gummit, Moses, get it together and just do what I say. Like he meets Moses right there in his doubts. He gets right there on the level of Moses' unbelief and he says, let me help you. (laughs) Because he doesn't just want to equip Moses for the mission that he's calling him on. He is doing that, but he also wants to draw Moses out of his doubts. He wants to draw Moses out of his unbelief and deeper into a relationship of trust and faith. And so he responds to Moses right there at the level of his doubts. How does he do it? Well, he does it in three ways. He assures Moses of three things. He assures Moses of his power, his presence, and his provision. And he does the same thing with us. Let's see how he does it with Moses here. Look, look at these each in turn briefly. First of all, he, he assures Moses of his power. Uh, and he does this in verses 2 through 9. At the root of Moses' doubts here in verse 1, you remember was at the root of those doubts was the belief that, God, there's just some things and some situations and some people that even you can't change. They're not going to believe, and they're going to get in the way. I know them. They're not going to listen. 
Even though you've told me that they will, I just don't think that they will. And God responds to that doubt by giving Moses three demonstrations, three jaw-dropping, kind of mystifying signs of God's power. The snake, the leprous arm, and then turning the water into um, blood. The snake, the snake sign obviously worked. Moses drops his staff down, it turns into a snake, and he runs like a little girl, just like I would have. That was a real snake. It wasn't an illusion of some kind. Um, he does the same thing with t- putting his hand in the coat, pulling it back out again, and then with the water to blood. And notice this. This is fascinating. God, it, God knows them well enough that he says, look, those first two signs, they should work, but guess what, Moses? I know them too. You might need a third. And so here it is. The water, into, the water of the Nile into the blood. And so three signs... Three demonstrations of God's power. And we're going to see each of these signs employed later on in the story of Exodus, and they all carry, they, they all carry those some kind of unique significance that Moses would have recognized and that would have clicked with him right there. I mean, think about it. The snake. He drops his staff down, and it turns into a snake. And most commentators think it was probably a cobra, very common snake around that area. And the cobra was the sign. It was the emblem For Pharaoh himself, when Moses walks into Pharaoh's palace, he would have looked up at Pharaoh and Pharaoh would have had this crown on that had a cobra ready to strike on it right there at the top of his crown because those two, the sign went with with him and vice versa. So think about what God is communicating to Moses here. Moses, drop it. It turns into a snake. Moses runs from it and then God says, turn around, grab it by the tail where, where, you're actually, where you're actually going to be vulnerable to it turning around and striking you. Grab it by the tail. Trust me. And he does it, and he tames it. The snake is tamed because it is turned into something inanimate and not alive anymore. And so that was a parable, a preview of what God was going to do through Moses to the power and the authority of Pharaoh himself. And then think about the, the Nile River, the water turning into blood. The Nile was a god to the Egyptians. They worshipped it. It was their lifeline. It was an, the artery of life to them that brought life and greenness and health and, and, and everything to the land of Egypt. They worshipped it. It had its own name as a god. And so turning that water into blood, this is not just a parlor trick. This is not just God saying, hey, y'all, watch this. This is deeply symbolic of what God is going to do to the powers and the deities of the, of the gods over Egypt. God is giving Moses these three demonstrations, and it's really important, though, to hear what God himself calls them. How does he want us to think about them? Well, notice he doesn't call them just like just spells or magic tricks or parlor tricks. He calls them three times in verses 89, signs. And that's really important. Because what does a sign do? It points to something, Right? If you traveled over spring break this last week, you were probably driving down the highway following either the signs that your phone was giving you or the signs on the side of the highway leading you to your destination, leading you to whatever exit or highway or, or wherever you were going. Signs are meant to take you somewhere outside of the sign itself. And so where do these signs lead us? Where are these signs pointing Moses and us? Well, to say it very simply, these signs, 
are pointing to the God who can change things. The God who can change things. God gave Moses these signs to demonstrate his unstoppable, unlimited, unrestricted, absolute power to change the kind of people and situations and circumstances that we think can't change and that we think are above his pay grade. These signs were meant to sink into Moses' heart and to melt his unbelief. He was meant to follow the signs to God, to the destination, and to say, if God can do that here, if he can change that stick into a snake and back again, if he can change what's healthy into something that's diseased and back again, and water into blood, if he can do it at that scale, then he can do it at any scale. And brothers and sisters, don't you wish we had signs like that? Don't you wish God would come along and give us something tangible, something that we could see or remember that was a sign that pointed to what he's capable of doing, the fact that he's the God that can change things? Well, the biggest sign that you could ever ask for is right there in the middle of your Bible, a cross and an empty tomb. The signs that God has given the world and his people to demonstrate to us that God is capable of changing the things that we think can't change. That he can turn darkness into light and despair into hope and life into death. God wants those signs, just like the signs here, to sink into our hearts and to melt our unbelief. He wants those signs to lead us to the destination, which is himself, and conclude that if God is capable of doing that, if God can bring the Lord Jesus Christ alive again from the dead, then there is nothing out of the reach of his redeeming, transforming power to make all things new not just at some point in the future, but even in your life now, to redeem it and to change it, not out of your strength, but out of his. So notice he, he not only gives Moses, he not only reassures Moses' doubts by, by giving him signs of his power, but he also reassures Moses of his presence, verses 11 and 12. And I love this part because I think I know what Moses was probably thinking at this point. I'm just assuming that Moses was something like me and that after seeing those three signs play out and, and, and seeing where the sign leads to, that, that God can change things that I don't think can change, I bet that Moses might have been thinking, okay, well, if I express my doubts, my sincere doubts about me being God's spokesman because of my obvious weakness and inability, then maybe God will change my weakness. Maybe God can change that too. He changed my staff into a snake. Certainly he can change my slowness of speech into the greatest oratory skills that anybody's ever seen. Because look, y'all, that's what we want God to do with our weaknesses, right? When it really comes down to it, we want God to change them into strengths. That's what we think we need when we're struggling or when we're face-to-face -face with our limitations or the things that we're called to do that we don't feel like we can do. 
when we run into our limitations and our weaknesses as a spouse or as a parent, as a friend, as a roommate, as a neighbor, when we bump into those limitations and we get to the end of our rope and we know there is something I'm called to do and something I need to be that I can't do or be on my own, what we want God to do is just change our weakness into strength. But how does God respond to Moses' weakness here? Well, notice we see that God isn't interested in making him stronger. He's not interested in making Moses more reliant, more, more self-reliant, more, more independent. He doesn't give him better speaking skills. What does he give him? He gives him himself. He says in verse 12, Now therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Go, and I will be with you. My presence will supply the strength that you need. I'm not going to give you strength. I'm going to give you me. All that I am is going to be for you and with you in what I'm calling you to do. So all that you have to do is go because I'm going with you. This is like the Old Testament version of 2 Corinthians 12. We referenced it earlier where Paul learns the exact same lesson. He begged with Jesus to take away those thorns in the flesh that he was experiencing, whatever weakness it was that was inhibiting his ability to follow or, or, or do what he felt like God wanted him to do. And he thought it would make all the sense in the world for God to just take this away and make me more productive. How does Jesus respond? He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. And y'all, isn't that the best words that you could possibly have to be ringing in your ears and to be ringing in your heart as you follow Jesus in whatever he's called you to do? As you follow him into what he's called you to do and what he's called you to be, and as you bump up immediately into your lack of ability to do that on your own. You remember, what was the, what was the last words that Jesus' disciples heard at the, end, at the end of the book of Matthew? What did Jesus leave ringing in their ears? Go and make disciples out of all the nations, dot, 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 and behold... I am with you, even to the end of the age. He doesn't say, go make disciples, and I'm going to make you amazing at doing it, and you're going to have all the strengths and capacities you could possibly want. He just says, go, trust me, I'll be there. So God reassures us of his power. He reassures us of his presence. One other way that he responds to our doubts is that he gives us provision. He responds with provision. He provides Moses here with the assistance and the partnership and the company of his own brother, even though, yes, that might come back to bite him later on in the, in the story of the book of Exodus. This, is, this might be a mixed gift, but it is a gift nonetheless. He gives him Aaron to help with Moses' mission on the, Moses that, on the, on the calling that God is, is calling Moses on. But I want you to notice that even after he, even providing Moses with Aaron, the company, and the partnership of Aaron, and the assistance there, notice that God's patience with Moses here, with his doubts, 
and with his unbelief, it begins to get thin at this point. In verse 13, Moses tries one more time to play what he thinks is the ace of spades. He doesn't think that God has another something in his hand that can beat this. And so God fi- Moses finally lays down in verse 13 what he thinks is the card that's going to end the game. God, I just don't want to go. Please send someone else. And then it says that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Because even now, just seconds after God had assured him that God's going to be with him and that all that he is is going to be with him and for him, it's still not enough for Moses. Moses is doing these internal calculations and deciding that's not enough. I just don't think I want to go, God. And here's the thing. Moses is pretty stubborn here. He's pretty hard-headed. He's just like one of his people that God is going to describe as being stiff-necked. They don't want to change. But I want to invite you to see that Moses is actually not the most stubborn character in this conversation. It's God. God is so graciously, lovingly, stubbornly committed to saving his people and keeping his promises and being good to us that he won't even let Moses' unbelief get in the way of doing what he's promised to do. He says, I see that, Moses. You're still going. Even you can't get in the way of what I've promised to do. And your stubbornness can't get in the way of my stubborn commitment to be good to you and to save my people. You're going. Moses begs here, as we, as we close, he begs here, please send someone else. He prays to God, let me out. Please send someone else. And God, out of his promise-keeping love for his people, doesn't answer that prayer. But y'all, one day... Years later, God, out of his promise-keeping love for his people, would answer that prayer. One day he would send someone else. One day he would send someone greater than Moses. Someone who wouldn't be reluctant or hesitant or shrink back from the mission of saving God's people, even though it would cost him everything. One day God would send someone who perfectly embodied his power and his presence and his provision. Someone who would be called God with us. You see, the point here is not to walk out of this room thinking, I've got to be better than Moses. I don't want to to doubt and have unbelief like Moses. We do need to have that kind of heart inspection. But y'all, the point here, the point here is that we need a better Savior than Moses for all the times that we're just like Moses and that you have one. You have one who did not shrink back, someone who knew what it would cost, someone who, someone who would give his life to have you and to save you, to keep his promises to you. You have a better Savior than Moses who will not let you go 
and who is with you in a closer, more intimate way than you can possibly imagine, and who's calling you to follow him on the mission that he's called you on, to go and take his love out into the world to your neighbors, to your city, to your coworkers, to your classmates. And he's saying, you're not going to go anywhere where I'm not. You have a better Savior than Moses. May that thrill our hearts and warm our affections to follow him every step of the way of where he's calling us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the good reminder of who you are, the good reminder of your, of your power and your presence and your promises. Thank you that not even our weakness can get in the way of your saving and sovereign purposes, not only in this world but in our own lives. Thank you that nothing can get in the way. We pray, Lord Jesus, that 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 would put steel in our backbones, that that would give us firm resolve to follow you, even if it means following you, stumbling and tripping every step of the way, feeling our own weakness as you lead us deeper and deeper into our own inability to do what you've called us to do on our own resources. But, oh, Lord, let us find you there at the end of our rope, waiting for us the whole time, And Lord, let us love you and trust you more because of that. In your name we pray. Amen.